everybody, this is Keith Rainwater with the Designated Drummer Podcast, and I am in this amazing place right now. I know I always say that. I always say like, hey, I'm in this amazing place, and I always am. This really, truly is amazing. I'm at Mount Richmore, Rich, Mount Richmore with John, my good friend, John Rich. Yeah, welcome to the house, Keach. <laughs> Thanks, man. Good to have you. I, c- I couldn't resist is... the play on words, Mount Richmore, you know. It's I got, know, I love Kind of silly, but I, it's fun. It totally fits, you know, because it's a, you're up on Love Circle Hill, which is like right. overlooks downtown Nashville and all yeah. that, and you're just built this huge, giant <laughs> fortress. It's like, it's like a castle. You know, this this room has been a lot of fun, the one we're sitting in, because, you you know, you guys have actually played here. You know, I remember Lone that. Star Your in, four, 40th my 40th birthday. birthday yeah. yeah. So you can set up a whole band, full sound, full everything. It's kind of like a venue. I you can come it. up here and invite all your friends and just plug in and go. I mean, who who builds a house and goes, oh, well, we got to have the club. we got to put the club on the side. <laughs> yeah, it's a raging debate. We don't know if there's a bar in my house or a house in my bar. I think <laughs> right. it depends on the night which one of those two things is true. That's right, yeah. But I can tell you, both of my sons had their kindergarten graduations up here on this floor. Wow. My brother had his bachelor party up here. Which brother? Uh, my brother Isaac. Isaac, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so there's been all, all manner of, uh, of events. I've had. We raise a lot of money up here. My wife and I, our goal every year is to eclipse a million bucks a year for charities up here in this house, so... We've managed to do that every year except COVID. We've done that since yeah. uh, since I built it. Uh, Folds of Honor, St. Jude Children's Hospital, places like that. So Dang, it's a uh, it's a very useful place. And now it's now it's part of the uh, Keach Rainwater uh, podcast <laughs> right. edition. I can say I did a podcast from here. Exactly so this is right. going to be my new studio. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so for those that don't know, John Rich uh, was the bass player, the original bass player. And singer, one of the singers with with Lone Star, with Texas C, which was ended up being Lone Star. Yeah. And um, I like the way Dean tells the story about how he met you at Opryland. You were singing in a, a little show that they had there. Yep. Because, I mean, that was kind of the only thing back in those early 90s, like to get work in Nashville. Yeah. You know, you either had to be a session guy or girl, or you had to uh, have a band already kind of together, or you worked operating and right? if, you, if you were under 21 then it's even more limited you know so that's at, right at, at that point when i was still a senior in high school uh 17 going on 18 um i read a buddy of mine actually showed me in the tennessee in the newspaper here he goes oh look opryland's having auditions you should audition for that because at that point i was singing at the little talent contest and whatever messing yeah. around i said oh man they ain't gonna hire a guy like me and he said why not i said you gotta know how to dance and do all this other it's like stage stuff it's like country broadway i ain't cut out for that he goes well man you know there's gonna be a bunch of good looking girls there i said well that is true he said just go down there and audition i'll go with you i said okay fine so we drove down there and auditioned for opryland uh i sang put yourself in my shoes clint black okay, that was a right. big song at the time and um got the call back and i said okay i think that means at least I'm still in the running. Yeah. Got the call back, did one more audition. They said, we want you to work here. So that was the summer of 92. Right. Uh, and I was had just turned 18 at that point, and I went to work at Opryland and thought, man, I think I finally made it. I can't believe somebody's <laughs> writing me a check to sing. It was your dad proud of you mind. by then, thinking you'd made it? He, he was really <laughs> blown away by that, because we used to go to Opryland. Growing up in Texas, had a lot of relatives in Tennessee, so every summer... The trip was you drive a thousand miles back to Tennessee and you always go to Opryland. Right. So I had been going there since I was four years old. That was old. a theme park at the time, right? Big yeah, theme, park, big theme park, and it was. I wish we still had it. Yeah. Can you imagine the business 
Opryland would be doing right now with right. what Nashville's if doing. If they had kept the theme park. They knocked and it down and built a mall. I, I mean, know. come on. Can you believe that? Oh, I wish we could get it back. But it, it, it was an important place for aspiring singers, especially, that if you could get in there, you were all of a sudden surrounded by other like-minded people that also had some ability and talent, and there were aspirational people. And so it's it fired you up. You know, yeah. when you meet Dean Sams, it was the first one of the first guys I met there. Uh, he was complimentary of my singing. He went, man, how high can you sing? I said, I don't know, pretty high. <laughs> he goes, yeah, you can sing real high, you know, and, and uh, befriended me and said, hey, let me kind of show you the ropes. And he had been at Opryland for a few seasons, and uh, that's where our friendship struck up. Wow, that is so awesome. And uh, I remember, I'll never forget this. He, he was telling me that when you guys first were putting the band together, the Texas Sea band together, which ended up being Lone Star later on. You had not really, you played bass a little bit, but you hadn't really played bass that much. But they said, well, we already have enough guitar players. We got Michael Britt playing guitar, but we need a bass player. Well, you, are you keen to play bass? You're like, yeah, just, so you went and bought a bass. Like, well, how hard can it be? It's only got four it's strings. It's only got four strings. And you only have to play them one at a time. <laughs> <laughs> right. How hard could this be? Yeah, but I'd never played with a drummer. Right. I'd never done any yeah. of those things. And, and I'm walking into a room with guys who had been playing the Texas honky tonk circuit for, 10 plus years right. i mean you're talking about you got to be a pro level player to get booked at those big bars in texas you know i mean some yeah. of the best players honestly in the world are still playing down in texas right now yeah so i was not qualified for that position but i could sing higher than richie so because i could hit a harmony note above richie mcdonald michael Britt and dean and at that point it was mike tucker they all got with me and they said listen you have got to get better at the bass or you can't stay in the band but man please get better at the bass because your singing is spot on yeah. you're killing these harmonies with richie just get better at the we bass. we don't want to replace you because said, you're gonna have to help singer. me do that because i don't know what the hell i'm doing right now and yeah. so michael Britt would sit down with me and 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 walk me through hey here's here's how you're supposed to do it and and would work with me on in the van and in the hotel rooms and eventually i got good enough to hang on to my gig in Lone Star. Well, how um, you had told me a long time ago that somebody told you, maybe it was Dean, they said, when he hits that kick drum, you look when you see his foot hit, that right. you hit the note. That's when you play a note. Right? Yeah. And I said, <laughs> is that how that, that pop sound, that boom sound is happening with the bass note? He goes, yes, they play together. <laughs> I said, I always thought it was the way the bass player was hitting the string. They go, no, the bass note hits with the kick drum. That's literally how much I did not know. I didn't wow. literally knew nothing. And and also they said uh, in during rehearsal, you, they would say, "Hey, this." You say, "What key is the song in?" And they would say, "Like you know, uh, A or something like that." You go play an A, and they play an A, and you go <laughs> boom, <laughs> and play That's and right. find it. Okay, I'm good now. That's right. That is all true. That's pretty phenomenal. You know, it, um, there's two comments on that. One, thank goodness I was with some guys that had some patience. Uh, because they were used to playing with the best of the best. That's number one, or I would have never made it. Number two is, my attitude then and to this very second is, if you see where you want to go, and you know that's where you're supposed to go, it doesn't necessarily matter if you're fully equipped to get there at that moment or not. You know, I was not fully equipped by any stretch to be in the band Lone Star, Texas Sea, to be with guys like that. But I knew that's what I wanted to do. I knew that's what I was capable of doing. So you have to go out there and be willing to look dumb and learn on the fly yeah. and practice and figure it out and try to rise to the occasion that you have found yourself in. Yeah. And that, that 
that is true no matter who you are or what it is you're trying to accomplish. If you're fully equipped to already be the, the biggest badass out there, then why do you need anybody to help you? You don't. You would just walk out and go dominate. That's not how it works. Right. It is a constant uh, it's constant progression, constant learning, constant challenging of yourself and, and being willing to honestly fail, uh, to fail miserably. I can't tell you how many times I stood on stage and would lose uh, my like where am I at in the song I barely know how to play this guitar and I would hit a bunch of bad notes and you'd see Michael Britt look at you with that look I'm like oh god I've had that look before I'm letting everybody <laughs> down you know but you just keep practicing yeah, I mean right. I think there were days I would sit around for seven or eight hours a day doing wow. nothing but playing on a bass right listening to a yeah, song because I wanted to be to in the band yeah. I wanted to be in that band I wanted to go make country music that's you know I decided to not go to college because these guys uh, invited me to go on a row with them and said, hey, we're going to play probably 150, 200 nights a year. And I said, well, that's what I want to do. I don't know how going to college is going to get me to, to that place I want to go. It's just going to postpone that. For, yeah, and so, yeah. so I did not go to college. I, and I had full-ride scholarships at three different universities on a vocal scholarship. Wow. My parents were really excited. They're like, man, college is paid for. And then I, I told my parents, well, I'm not going to college. And they said, what are you talking about? <laughs> I said, I met some guys from Texas, and I'm going out on the road to play Holiday Inn lounges and casinos in Sparks, Nevada. I bet they were and, excited to hear that. <laughs> oh, they were so, they were very disappointed. Wow. But, you know, it wasn't long after that, a couple years in, I invited them to the Grand Ole Opry to watch, Big, to watch uh, a Lone Star, and yeah. that's when they realized, okay, maybe he made the right shot, right yeah. choice. Oh, would, would that be the time that we vamped on uh, Heartbroke Every Day for like 10 minutes until they Yes, my famous bass guitar went out. Yeah. My heart rate's at 160. Well, the vocal mic wouldn't work. Like, Nothing they would kept, work. And then, so finally, didn't uh, Whisper and Bill Anderson give you, say, here, son, take my mic. Because <laughs> we kept vamping. Dun, 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 exactly. dun. And it was like the almost the whole length of the song. Yes. We just vamped on that. I thought I was going to have a heart attack. It's a good thing I was young or I would have dropped dead time. right on the Grand Ole Opry stage. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot of those, you know, a lot that of That was those, not your fault. I mean, that was... It wasn't handled, my fault. We, it was just, that was my luck. But... In that band, I got to watch uh, a real front, real front guys like Dean, Richie, Michael Britt, watch these guys command a stage. You know, one of the hardest things a musician can do is to stand in a smoky ass bar somewhere. Everybody's getting drunk and doing whatever. They hear all the best bands all the time. They're not really there to pay attention to you, to make them pay attention to the band and come back the second, third, and fourth night that you're in that town. Because you struck something in them that, because that makes they, them... Because they went, wow, this is entertainment. This yeah. is not just guys rattling off the words. Like, they're entertaining us right now. And, and uh, I didn't know how to do that either. So I got to stand shoulder to shoulder with real pros and learn how, how you work a mic. How do you work a crowd? How do you talk to a crowd? How do you build a set? How do you... How do you do this whole thing? It's it's yeah. a whole thing that goes into that. It's not luck. It's definitely uh, a skill set. Yeah, definitely. So the the vocal thing, you you were talking about having to get better at the bass, and you had really had to work at it and stuff like that. Was vocals not that way? Because seem you just seem like a natural. You seem like you never didn't sound good. You know, singing. Vocals was was it was a natural thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, growing up, my dad uh, preached in prisons. My dad uh, had street ministries. My dad hit 34 Mardi Gras in a row where he would drive down to the French Quarter during Mardi Gras with his guitar. My dad's a really good singer, guitar player. And he would stand down there with these crazy parades going by, singing gospel music and witnessing to people. And he'd come home 
with no voice left, no nothing left, beat all the smithereens, and then he'd go back the next year and do it again. So growing up around him, he's always singing, so I would always kind of chime in and sing along with him. And, you know, I was probably 11 or 12, and my dad said, you've got a really good voice. Are you singing a harmony note to what I'm singing? I said, I don't know. What's that mean? He goes, well, you singing a note higher than what I'm singing? I said, yeah. He goes, well, that's a harmony note. He goes, how do you know where that is? I go, I don't. I just hear it in my head. He right. goes, well, keep doing that. That's. He said, most people can't just hear the note in their head and hit it like that. I said, wow. okay. So I thought that was cool. And I, I fell in uh, love with people like Ricky Skaggs, uh, Ralph Stanley and the Clinch Mountain Boys, all guys that had really high voices. Yeah. Because right. I could sing note for note for note with the highest yeah. voices out and there. And bluegrass, it seems to me like bluegrass music inherently is a male, high singing male vocal. Yeah. It seems like. You don't hear a lot of baritone bluegrass yeah, No, you don't. No, it's always like, hey. <laughs> the higher the better. High <laughs> yeah, and lonesome. Singing right? for Jesus. Yeah, exactly right. So those became the kind of singers that I idolized because I could sound like them. Yeah. I loved George Strait and I loved all those guys, but I couldn't get down where they were at, but I could get up high with the yeah. with the bluegrass boys. So bluegrass became a big focus early on in my yeah, life. Wow. Well, I remember in Lone Star, um, we we had, you know, we didn't get a record deal for a long time because we had two vocalists, two lead vocalists, you and Richie. Right. And they passed, so every label in town passed on us. It was a couple confusing of times to because them. It was confusing because they were like, well, because our point was like, well, what about like the Eagles or the Beatles or all these famous bands that have more than one singer? They all sing, you know, pretty much. Yeah. And uh, they were like, well, unfortunately in country music, it's kind of like in the beginning you have to have a focus, you know. Right. So we got signed regardless of that. I mean, because yeah. RCA and B&A, they believed in us so much. But here's what I liked about it is Richie had his sound, and then when you sang on a radio, it was too completely, there's no ambiguity about who was singing. Yeah. Whereas some acts today, when you hear them, you know, I can't hardly tell them apart. They, right. they sort of sing in the same in the it same. It sounds lane. like they went to the school of redundancy school. school. Yeah, right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah also, Richie and I didn't too. sound anything alike. I know, yeah, not totally. At all. And And not only just... Uh, in my opinion, not only just the voice, but the style of music too. Your yours was more sort of Jerry Reed, mm. and Richie's was more kind of I don't know, uh, more middle of the road, kind of more soulful or he something. He was like a real, really like a really powerful Kenny Rogers. Yeah, right. You yeah, know, he had that rasp in his voice. Had and, a little tiny yodel in there, just a tiny bit. Yeah. And uh, and when you sang, it was like you know, like a honk. Yeah, it was it like was definitely out there. I mean, yeah. higher range, mm -hmm. and uh, and. God, who sang harmony with you when you sang lead? I don't remember that. I don't remember that. I don't know that That'd anybody went above me. I think I think Richie was right under and Dean was right under that. I yeah. think we went two under when wow. I was singing leads. I didn't. I never thought about that, but I thought about how high you sing. Yeah. And who sings the high harmony? I don't above know. You. Britt might have been pulling some at some point, but it was pretty daggum high. I mean, it was yeah. at the. You know, we go record the. The producer would want me to be at the top of my range. They yeah. want to put me up there where I'm really reaching for the notes, so it's yeah. so it's pushing through the track. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, uh, God, man, I mean, just the, 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 the type of songs we were getting at the time, you were also doing a lot of writing too. I mean, yeah. but I remember you used to go hang out at Sony, you and myself and Michael Britt, we all three got publishing deals at Sony tree. And yeah. so we started hanging out up there and writing. I wished I had one of my regrets is I wished I had stuck around and written a lot more. Yeah. I've never been much of a writer, but I could have developed that, I think, well, as that a drummer. Was a, so that was... Honestly, the best byproduct of getting a record deal with the band was that we got those default publishing deals because that's what they were. I mean, yeah. you're not going to get rich on that deal. But what do you get? You get to sit in the room with the masters of the craft. Yeah. The greatest living songwriters. It was Larry Boone, 
Paul Nelson, Don Cook, Chick Raines, Mark Sanders, Sharon Vaughn. I mean, yeah. names that are in the Hall of Fame now. Right. Uh, we're just hanging out in the building, and you're walking around. They're like, you want to write a song? I heard you got a record deal. Do you want to write a song? And that's how that worked. They want to get a cut on your yeah. record. But what we got out of it is we get to sit in the room with guys and watch how they yeah. write a song and have them critique you yeah. and break you down and build you up and do it over and over and over. And so I started at that point, I was I was peeling off about 120, 130 songs a year. Wow. I was living down there. I mean, I peeling was down there like so much, <laughs> they basically gave me a key to the building, said, come yeah. write anytime you want. That's and I awesome. just was so uh, blown away by that process that it's so limitless. I mean, songwriting... I always tell people this, regardless of where you find yourself in your life, you've, you've lost everything, nothing's going right, everything is upside down. Find the one thing you can still control and control yeah. it well. Well, for me, that's always been a blank sheet of paper and a pencil. And a guitar. Because I mean, you yeah. can't take my paper away yeah. and you can't take my pencil or my guitar away. And as long as I've got that, I'm still in the game. I'm still swinging. Because you never know what I might put on that page. Yeah. That that might be the one that pulls me up out of this rut. That might be the one that changes everything. And that, to me, is the most limitless thing out there. I, I remind people that the the pages of the Constitution of the United States started out as blank sheets of paper. That's right. Until someone put, a, a at that point, a quill pen to it. The pages of the Bible yeah. were blank pages before inspired people put the word, words of God down on those pages and so on and so forth. Right. And so when you think that you, you've got nothing else to give and you can't, you're just not going to be able to figure it out, remember the simplest things are always still available to you. That's right, yeah, that's true. And that's... Uh, A lot of artists yeah. need to remember that because being an artist is an absolute bloodbath 90% of the time. 10% mm -hmm. of the time, you're riding high, and the other 90%, you're trying to figure out how to get to that other 10%. Yeah. Right? You've been through it. Yeah, up, down, up, down, up, Absolutely. down. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, when I came from Canyon, uh, we were riding high for, you know, not not wealthy, but, you know, we, we were popular. We were we were like the number one band at Fanfare and all that stuff, and, and uh, we got a lot of recognition. And then it just kind of, you know, things changed. The sounds, Garth Brooks came along and yeah. kind of made the Hat Act thing a thing and yeah. um it was tough it was tough for well every everything has its window yeah you know i think uh anybody that's a songwriter singer whatever uh you want to be in the entertainment industry you got to understand that if you ever get your run and you get hot take full advantage of that because it's easy to to make yourself think it's going to be like this forever yeah look at all these people that love what i'm doing they're always going to be around. Well, they'll always be around, but they may love something more than you one of these days. Yeah, or you right. may become something they used to love or something they, mm -hmm. you know, they don't check in every day like they used to. And that's fine. That's the nature of the beast. It's supposed to be that way. Yeah. You know, you don't, uh, you don't hear Martina McBride on the radio all the time. Does that yeah. mean Martina McBride's not an absolute badass? No. Do I still love Martina McBride? Yes. I would go listen to her sing anytime, anywhere. It, that goes for all your artists. Even Johnny Cash himself it, it lost his record deal. Lost his record deal. I mean, uh, Columbia Records drops Johnny Cash from the label. Wow. Now, how would you like to be Johnny Cash? You've been the biggest artist on the planet, short of Elvis. You're the biggest. Yeah. And then your record label on Music Row says, yeah, we don't, we don't have time for you anymore. Nobody cares about your music anymore. Get out of my office, basically. And then Johnny Cash goes, okay, well, I think... I think I've still got some more music left. So he goes out there and he starts cutting the greatest records of his career 
after that. The industry does not get to decide where the music goes. The music decides where the industry goes. Oh, that's that's the artists drive the industry. Now, as bad as the industry wants to make us believe that they dictate the future of music, they don't. The ones that are writing those songs and the ones that are bringing them to the stage, they dictate where it goes. They can only they can only market what we bring to them. Right. And you know, singers and artists, two different animals. I've compared the music industry to a sidewinder snake. If you've ever seen a video of one, they they move back and forth and back and forth like a big S. But forward. It moves them forward. They move forward, right. But back and forth. And I said, the music industry is like a sidewinder snake. And a singer chases the tail of that snake. It turns left, they turn left. It turns right, they turn right. But an artist, that's a powerful word. That means you make art. Art is not supposed to be redundant. Art is not supposed to be um, by any rule book. Art is a free expression, whether it's a painting, a song, or anything else. Artists cut a straight line, and as they cut that straight line, that sidewinder snake goes back and forth across that straight line, meaning sometimes your phone is ringing and sometimes it's not. Sometimes you're hot, sometimes you're cold. It depends on where the industry's moving, but you continue on your line and you're an artist and that's what you do and true artists in my opinion have always been the ones that dictate the future of the music yeah is that to say that artists because they're going in a straight line that they shouldn't change they shouldn't try to change with the times and just but just be who they are and let the times come back around they should change with the times if it suits them right if they like the change sure move along with it if you like it but an artist should never go against their own instincts about who they are just because the industry is saying this is where it's headed right yeah they should never do that yeah and and now that's that's going to make a little more difficult trip for you but at the end of the day you're going to be somebody they remember right yeah because you stood out and you cut your line and you didn't move off of it you know chris stapleton's a great example chris stapleton has sounded like chris stapleton for 30 years yeah but only in the past several years is chris stapleton a, a really big, huge, well-known artist. That boy sounded like that since the first time I heard him 20 years ago. He never changed. There's nothing about him that changed. His look hasn't changed. His sound hasn't changed. The way he writes hasn't changed. Nothing. The industry had to conform to him because he's yeah. so damn good, and he finally got heard, and the fans responded, so the industry had to follow wow. his tale instead yeah. of the other way around. Wow, that's pretty phenomenal for an artist to do that. To be able to command that kind of... Well, if you look uh, back at the ones we all look up to the most, that's what they all were. Yeah. Loretta Lynn was like that. Uh, They were telling Loretta Lynn, you can't say stuff like that, Loretta. You can't say... You can't sing the pill. You can't sing that. That's going to offend people. She goes, well, hell, that's what I want to say. So she said it. Um, Johnny Cash, great example, cuts his records at Sun Records in Memphis, got his hair slicked back playing rockabilly, singing about sex, drugs, and rock and roll, comes to Nashville, and they said, well, we don't know what you are, but you are not country music. You're not welcome on the Grand Ole Opry, and nobody cares, and go back to Memphis, Elvis impersonator. I mean, they were terrible to him, and he just kept coming. Now, he's a pillar Mm -hmm. of country music. Another one is uh, Conway Twitty. Conway Twitty, they all told Conway that he, they said, you are an Elvis impersonator. That's what, you you should just go to Vegas Conway and be an Elvis impersonator. By the way, Conway Twitty's not even your name. Oh, they beat him up one side down wow. the other. Uh, Willie Nelson is sitting out here living in his car. Nobody give him the time of day. Meanwhile, he's writing songs like crazy. He's writing the greatest country songs that have ever been written. But he's got he's got long hair and he smokes dope and he's you know he's a hippie. 
And they go, yeah, Willie, we don't care about your music. So he goes to Austin and cuts Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain. Right, yeah. And then the whole world lights up to Willie Nelson. And Nashville's like, come back, Willie, we love you now. <laughs> yeah, you right. see what I mean? So these stories yeah. go on and on. Uh, that is a common story, in, in, in my opinion, if the industry is telling you that what you're doing is not marketable. Yeah. But it's really good, but it's not marketable. Well, you have a decision to make at that point. You're going to cut off all your edges. Are you going to homogenize yourself and go get the deal and go out here and just be one of them? Or are you going to hold your ground and go, well, it's going to be a little tougher than I thought, but I'm going to stay yeah. who I am the entire time. That's the biggest payoff at the end of the day if you got enough guts to do it. Yeah. You know, years ago, Chuck Cannon, the songwriter Chuck Cannon, had told me he's good friends with he was with good friends with Toby Keith and he said that you know when Toby Keith's first couple singles came out and then he kind of his deal was up or something yeah. and I remember him telling me he doesn't have a record deal now yeah. and then right after that he started cutting great stuff and great music and I remember I read somewhere that Toby Keith basically said you know, there's all these people in Nashville that try to tell me how to sound, how I should sound. Because nobody on this planet knows how Toby Keith sounds, but Toby Keith. Right. So I said, I'm just taking the, and I think Kenny Chesney did the same thing. Yeah. It's just like, I know how I want to sound and I don't care what anybody in Nashville producers or whatever. Yeah. I know the songs I want to write and the kind of stuff I want to sing about and the kind of way I want to sing it. And yeah. if you don't well, like Chesney's it. Chesney's another example of yeah. that. I mean, same thing. He was, everybody thinks Kenny Chesney's always been selling out stadiums. No, he wasn't. No, no. Kenny when he Chesney, was on B&A with us, he was. Other artists used to make jokes about Kenny Chesney. Remember? Yeah. Some of the big artists, they'd be like, oh, there's little Kenny. You know, they'd, they'd like, you know, like little kid brother, I'm going to scob your knob kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, and he just stayed with it. He found his own space, his own sound, his own look, his own vibe. He became yeah. the country Jimmy Buffett, basically. Exactly, yeah. And that's where he wanted to be because that's who the guy is. He started working out. And, and, and from what I heard is that, you know, he would just, whatever the label needed him to do he was there to do it sure you know i mean well and like, that's understandable yeah. honestly any artist that's, that listens to this to this podcast here it is understandable that your american dream is to be a country music artist and when somebody finally pays attention to you and offers you a contract you're basically willing to do whatever you got to do to get that shot because that's been your dream meaning sign something the whole time. that doesn't make sign any sense something yeah. that that's going to hang you up or mm -hmm. or do you know sound a certain way or dress a certain way or do whatever because the label's telling you it's an understandable problem to have yeah however you have to be able to look at your heroes and go how did my heroes do it if you want to be like one of your heroes do it like they did it and none of them compromised anything right yeah that's true so uh, when you started writing, when you started getting into writing, when this would have been as early as high school, right? You started, I know you started singing and stuff like that, but you were-, were I started messing around things? with writing, yeah, in high school. Yeah. Um, were they personal just, things that was happening to yeah, you, or first, did you try to imagine other people? Well, Keats, you know, it always comes down to a girl. Of course. I mean, that's yeah. the only reason anybody picks up drumsticks or a guitar or anything else. We want to meet girls, that's man. That's right, yeah. So there was a girl that uh, was dating a big football player, and, uh, you know, I was about 115 pounds soaking wet. But I'm like, man, that girl, she's, she's the deal. So I wrote a song about her, recorded it in my little jam box on a cassette, and I wrote the lyrics out and stuck it in her locker. Oh, yeah. Really? I, made a, I made a power move. I'm like, I, you know, I can't be on the football team, but, man, I can write a song. So I, I wrote write this song, dropped it in, and guess what? She wound up breaking up with the guy two weeks later, and I started going out with wow, her. So I went, man, oh, yeah. these, this songwriting thing. <laughs> 
this works yeah wow. yeah so that's that's when i first realized you know as we talked the power of a song even though that's a silly story it's true man yeah music can unlock people was that also uh the song does your daddy know about me was that was that from the same girl <laughs> that was, listen back in the day it was like the, every everywhere i turned there was another girl i'm yeah. in love with so you hey. wrote that didn't you co-write yeah, that, I wrote that yeah 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 darling does your daddy know, know about, about me, me. Yeah. yeah and uh i think one of my favorite songs that we do live is come crying to me we still that's do. a we, good one have you heard the new version the 20 uh, from the 10 to 1 record that kind I of have we did it to it is slick we did kind of a yeah it's very slick yeah, yeah it's very cool we, we have we have your approval oh on yeah the Dean, change Dean of let the me style. hear it i'm like that is so good yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's really bringing that was fun yeah. production yeah well i think he had heard some other band that was doing some ver- other song and I can't remember who it was, but some band, I think at the Ryman or something like that. And the way they were doing that sort of feel of that up-tempo kind of uh, almost double time kind of yeah. thing. And he thought, man, Come Crying to Me would sound, that almost sounds like Come Crying to Me, but double time. Right. And so, yeah, that's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, I mean, you know, a great song can be re-recorded a hundred different ways if you do it good and people still like it. Yeah. That That's one of the things, you know, about songwriting for me is I've written over 2,000 of them. Yeah. And out of the 2,000 I've written, I've had 212 of them recorded. So I've got about a 1 to 10 ratio. Yeah. So I was going to ask you everyone about... that's been cut, yeah. there's nine that have not been cut that are sitting in my laptop right now. Including Barbed Wire Boulevard? <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, including <laughs> that. Yeah. Yeah, most of them suck. That's why Wait. they haven't been recorded. I actually like that song. We demoed it in some band house we were staying yeah. in. You remember that? Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> but but it's a it's a you know it is a it, it's a game on the songwriting side of of it's quality but it's quantity too. Mm-hmm. I mean, a- any songwriter out there. I mean, how many songs you know did did Slits have to write before he wrote The Gambler? Yeah, right. There's no telling. Hundreds yeah. before he got that. And one. they're all sitting somewhere. And they're all sitting somewhere. It's a box yeah, I mean, somewhere. And, and the truth is, some of the greatest songs you will never hear them because they're yeah. back in somebody's catalog and been buried for decades and it's yeah. brilliant. And I'll run across some every now and then. And, but that's the thing about writing songs. It is a limitless activity and you never master it by the way. When yeah. you walk in the front door of the house where you just walked in, you probably didn't see it. I'll show it to you on the way out, but I've got Bobby Braddock wrote out the lyrics to he stopped loving her today. He signed it. Then he got Curly Putnam to sign it, who he co-wrote the song with and then George Jones was here several times back in the day, early on when I built the house, and George signed it. So wow. that's hanging at my front door for one main reason, to remind me I will never, I have, so far, I have never written a song that good. Wow. So of all the songs I've written, I've written some good ones, I ain't written that song. So right. it reminds you where the bar is. It's another thing I tell artists and musicians, don't compare yourself to who's currently out. Don't yeah. say, well, I'm really good compared to, this guy or that guy or this girl yeah say am i am i really good compared to the greatest of all time am i really good compared to johnny cash right. no you're not no you're not are you really good compared to harlan howard as a songwriter no you're not yeah. i'm not you're not none of us are remind yourself of who the greatest of the greats are and shoot at that and and yeah. that that will be a forever exercise in your life but it'll push you to constantly be better what do you think that you learned in the whole process of i don't know it's little tiny you're hacking away little tiny bits but through your writing uh career um what do you think has helped you the most in where you are now as far as a writer as to where you were when you back you know when you were in high school or whatever i think some of the some of the um philosophy of writing songs so by that i mean 
Sharon Vaughn, for instance. So Sharon Vaughn, I probably learned more about how to write in pictures from Sharon Vaughn than anybody ever wrote with. She is, she is uh, voyeuristic in the mm. way she writes. So she wrote, My Heroes Have Always Been Cowboys when she was 19 years old by herself. And one of the lines in that song is, as Willie Nelson sings it, picking up hookers instead of my pen, I let the words of my youth fade away. Okay, she's writing as if she is a cowboy. Yeah. Here's a 19-year-old girl writing as though she's some worn-out, desperate cowboy. She's writing from his point of view. She stepped into his boots and wrote it from his perspective to such a degree that Willie Nelson and Waylon and everybody else went, this is one of the greatest songs we've ever heard. I can't believe a teenage girl (laughs) wrote this song. So that's how Sharon writes. So writing with her... You start to learn how to, I've got this song idea, and here's here's how the story kind of plays out. She would then dive into that and put you in the room. You could smell it, taste it, feel it, sit there. Like you you be, you walked wow. into a room, and that's like what's a painting, going on. Like a like movie Like you script walked into a, painting, a Polaroid yeah. shot of yeah. a scene going wow. on. And lear- learning how to write in pictures like that, if you listen to a lot of my songs, whether it's a serious song or a funny song, go to, go to Hicktown with Jason Aldean. You can see the neighbor's butt crack nailing on his shingles. <laughs> yeah. That's a silly line, but you got a picture in your head when I said yeah, that. Yeah, right. Right? Picture after picture after picture. So I'm a very visual guy yeah. when it comes to lyrics, and I learned stuff like that from the greats. Yeah. So uh, after Lone Star, you were just a like, full-time writer for a little while. I know you had uh, some songs on B&A. You did a release, a uh, couple of songs uh, released. I had a solo and, deal. They both flopped. Yeah. Both singles flopped, and then I lost that deal. So I'd been... Exited from Lone Star, uh, failed solo deal. Now what? The phone ain't ringing now, brother, I hate to tell you. And I look up and I see you guys singing Amazed at the CMA Awards. And I'm at at home in my little apartment with no record deal, no publishing deal, nothing. Watching you guys have the biggest song of 20 years. And I'm going, man, did I screw up. Holy cow. (laughs) So at that point is when I uh, got the great advice of con- find what you can still control and control it well, John. Which is the writing and the Write, stuff like that. write yeah. your way out of it. Yeah. Write your way out of it. So I just went headlong into writing songs and going out and singing those songs at open mic nights and wherever they'd let me get up. Yeah. And that eventually uh, led to me meeting a lot of really talented people uh, that took me to the next phase of my career. Wow. Because um, now when, when, when I'm here at uh, Mount Richmore, uh, we, we were here for your 40th birthday party and we, I think played a couple songs in your club, your club, your house club, your club, is it a house or a club, a club with a house, clubhouse. A house or club? I don't know. Clubhouse. And, uh, we were in that elevator and I saw all these pictures of you and rap artists and famous people. And I think Gene Simmons and yeah. uh, I was like, man, so much, I feel like Lone Star was just a drop in the bucket of what you've accomplished in the kind of, uh, life that you've, that you've led, you know, from, from 92 to yeah. till now. It's amazing. Lone Star was critical that I would be, we talked about being prepared to go take it on. Lone Star is what got me prepared to do what I was getting ready to do next. And what I did next was is, you know, I'm a fan of all kinds of music. If you, if you got in my truck with me and we put it on random, you would hear, you would hear Audio Slave and Nirvana, and then you would hear uh, Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin, and then you would hear Ralph Stanley and the Clinch Mountain Boys, and then wow. you'd hear George Strait, and then you'd hear Back in Black, and so on <laughs> wow. and so forth. And, you know, I, I'd always had the thought, man, why can't I combine some of these sounds that I love so much into one thing and make that 
my country music. Yeah. Why can't I do that? Well, same thing you said before. The labels go, yeah, it doesn't work like that. Nobody sounds like that. You can't you can't blend genres together like that. You can't yeah. blend these kinds of sounds together. It's, there's no market for that. Yeah. I said, well, you know what? They're right because nothing like nothing sounds like that on the radio. But then I run into this guy, Big Kenny, who had the same exact thought process I had. He goes, why can't we do that? Yeah. I go, well, they say it's they can't make any money doing that. He goes, yeah, but it's fun. I said, oh, it's definitely fun. He goes, well, why don't we just write a bunch of that stuff and go demo it and see what happens. We'll just start jamming and let's set up a jam night. We'll call it Music Mafia. We set that whole thing up. I was going to ask you how that whole thing started. Yeah, so Kenny and I, you know, we had friends that one guy's a rapper, one guy's an R&B guy. You had Gretchen Wilson, who's a bartender, who would come. Um, you had all these various had spoken word artists. I mean, all these people that we were friends with. And if we wanted to go see our buddy who's the R&B guy perform, we had to go to an R&B bar. If we want to see John Ritz sing, we got to go to a country bar. want to hear Big Kenny, you got to go to some kind of rock and roll kind of joint. And we thought, well, that's just nonsense. Why can't we all play at the same place? Well, because the crowds are totally different. I go, yeah, I just don't believe that. Yeah. Because I like all kinds of music. There's got to be other people like that. So we said, well, if nobody will let us do it, we'll just do it on our own. We went to the Pub of Love, which used to be across from 12th and Porter. They had a room that set about 50 people, tiny little hole in the wall. We took the worst night of the week, Tuesday nights, and we just called our friends, drag up a PA upstairs, set up some folding chairs, and just start playing. Really? And we did that 72 Tuesday nights in a row without missing one. And by the time we got to 72, I look out in the crowd, there's Paul Worley, there's James Stroud, there's Borchetta, there's all these guys wow. in the room that are showing up to our jam just with their eyes wide open, like, what am I watching right now? Because it was a mashup, but it was harmonious the way yeah. it went. It made sense in some weird way. Here's Cowboy Troy rapping to this new song that John and Kenny wrote called Save a Horse, Ride a Cowboy. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard, but I like it. Yeah. And that is what started breaking through the labels that, hang on, maybe there is something to this. We just had to stick with it long yeah. enough. So Save a Horse, Ride a Cowboy, did that by any chance come from that time that we were at Venice Beach and we walked over there and that guy uh you had somebody had a shirt on that said save a horse ride a cowboy I had and that guy yeah. wrote a song on the spot whatever his name was this cake man cake man oh cake, remember man. cake man yeah I remember I'd he, sort of yeah kind of made this little song <laughs> called save a horse ride a cowboy did and then he really? I heard I your version of it I was like, oh okay no I did I you don't, don't remember, remember him singing that no he, he sang he had remember he we, we were pulling in that bigger our big blue bus yeah we we're pulling into venice beach we had like a couple of days off or something and we're pulling in there and i saw him out the window i saw him with his guitar big uh, like, i mean cake yeah. man walking out and uh he saw the bus and he turned right around and followed the bus back in <laughs> i go that guy i guarantee you he's gonna he's gonna hit us up he's gonna <laughs> yeah. he's gonna come knock on our thing he's gonna try to you know like hang with us and uh, which was fine you know uh so sure enough he came up and he started talking and all that and he wrote his two songs he wrote one song called save a horse ride a cow i guess he because someone had a shirt That's on crazy, that said man. that or something yeah someone so had the a phrase shirt. was around like it was or, on people's shirts and bumper yeah. stickers and yeah save a horse and stuff, ride yeah. a cowboy and so he wrote save a horse ride a cowboy not your version but totally totally different and he, he wrote a song called lone star is this I, I kid you not this was the name of the song lone star is the best country band at the music at the at at the CM at the Country Music Awards. How do you was, remember stuff like that? I this? don't know. I just <laughs> stuff like that stands out. Keach is a savant, ladies and gentlemen. 
you just understand that he is. I also yeah. remember you one night um, having a, a little rocket launcher in your base yes. that you installed, and we were at some place in Louisiana, and this guy was just bugging the crap out of you, and it's, <laughs> he wouldn't sh- shut up. And I, I was making, he was just pointing and laughing and this kind of thing. So you're like, oh, for, forget him. Doing, <laughs> I and fired you shot, one right at him. Fired yeah, a, um, landed on his hat. What was it like a paper? It was uh, uh, it was flash paper. Flash. Paper. So you hit a button. I bought it at like a, a magic shop or yeah. something. You push a lever and it would light the flash paper and launch it off the end of the guitar. And you just mounted it on your. <laughs> I just ma- your glued it on. Fret, uh, I mean, yeah, your uh, headstock head or something. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of I just fun. Remember, I remember watching you do it, and you you had you kind of put the bass on your hip, almost like you're shooting a, a bazooka or something. Yeah, you kind of I'm a good shot, and, it was, and I'm I think it shot. landed in his cowboy hat. It did. I'm a good shot. That's why. That's why. Oh no, God. that that kind of fun uh, in Lone Star and and in the big and rich world, that's always been a driver for me. I don't like working with people that I don't have fun with. Right. Yeah. I just don't. I've turned down all kinds of opportunities because I just didn't think the people were very fun. Yeah, I got you. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. A business or whatever. I'm like. Yeah, it's a good idea. You probably make some money with that, but I don't really like these people very yeah, much. Right. They don't yeah. seem fun at all. I think you got to have fun no matter what you're doing. Uh, and if you're not having fun, go find some other people. Wow. And that's what Kenny was in Cowboy Troy and Gretchen. You know, you got a bunch of outcasts there. For me, out of Lone Star, solo deal flopped. Kenny had, Kenny had gotten a record deal and lost it. Gretchen was working doubles in Printer's Alley. Cowboy Troy was working at a Foot Locker shoe store in Dallas. I mean that's what was going on i mean there was nothing going on and so everybody's going for broke and just having a great time thinking nothing's ever going to happen but at least we're having fun and what do you know man that became the catalyst yeah. for all kinds of things florida georgia line has told kenny and i multiple times that when we heard the first big and rich record say uh horse of a different color we heard that and went if those guys can sell millions of records with something that crazy I think our music might work. And they came to Nashville after hearing Big and Rich. I've had all kinds of artists tell me that. Yeah. Like we didn't think our stuff was possible till we heard you guys pull it off. That's the greatest compliment wow. ever. I had Keo on my uh, podcast uh, not Keo's too long great. ago. About a year ago, I think, or something like great that. Great drummer. Yeah, yeah. Played with us for eight years. Yeah, right. Yeah, that was awesome. Um, so you, you started this whole music mafia slash uh big and rich thing and the record it, it just exploded i mean it was just like people were like yeah that's fresh it's 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 different it's uh very edgy and fun you know and then you started this the whole freak parade thing i guess right yeah. on stage was, was that yeah kind of part of the design in. or did that just happen did that just like hey what if we, we just had this collection of people we're like people collectors two foot fred yeah i mean we got two foot fred we got cowboy troy we got the redneck woman we've got big kenny we got john rich i mean and you what had an artist that would do finger. Uh, yeah, she do paint, visual art. She would yeah, paint visual. to the music. Wow, I've, I've got a couple of her paintings. Rachel Kais, I've got a couple of her paintings That's in the right. house actually. Yeah, and uh, it was to us, it was just freedom of expression on blast. Yeah, we called it uh, music without prejudice, music with right. no boundaries, music. You know, the industry says you can't do this, and it always has to be like that. Well, they've been saying that for eighty years. They yeah. told. All those people I mentioned earlier, they told them mm-hmm. the same story and they just didn't listen. So it's they been proven wrong coming. so many it's, times. It is wrong. Yeah. It is wrong. It is a control mechanism that the music industry uses because they've got the money and they've got the wherewithal that they try to control the singer. Control. They, they want the singer to stay a singer and not, not ever become an artist because if they ever become self-aware and want to make their own decisions that bucks the record label, they don't like that very much until it works and then they love it. Then they want the whole industry to sound exactly like whatever that was. Yeah. But they never come up with anything. Yeah. It's always driven by the by the creators. 
Isn't it funny how the people with the money have the, it seems to me, have the least creativity, the least um, uh, vision, you know, and then it takes, they just know what they like. They just kind of want to point, yeah, okay, that sounds, yeah, that sounds good. Well, they all sit around in a room and go, they wait for somebody to say, I think I like that. And then they go, yeah, I like that too. (laughs) And if the same bird said, yeah, I don't like that, they go, yeah, that's terrible. (laughs) I mean, they're just a bunch of sheep (laughs) right? for the most part. There's a few out there that are are leaders that are younger people in the A&R departments and stuff that have some vision generally those people wind up doing some pretty great things they get into management actually a lot of times they get out of the record label scene record labels are a necessary evil unfortunately um the way the deals go these days with they get a piece of everything the 360 360 all the way around Mm -hmm. they're cutting you up my advice to artists looking at record deals is this whatever the deal you sign in the beginning is going to be shitty it just is you're going to be excited to sign it as you should be but i always advise people build into your record contract a sliding scale that goes in your favor meaning okay this is the way the deal sits right now as i sign it but if i do x amount of streams then now you're not getting 12 percent. now you're getting 10 right and if i hit the next level the next threshold then it goes to eight then six then four then two yeah if i if 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 i become worth x amount on the road if I, if someday i'm booking for this amount of money you no longer get this percentage of it it goes backwards yeah. into my favor that way it does two things it, it incentivizes the artist to go out here and bust their ass because they know they're going to keep more of their money mm-hmm. going forward and the label actually likes that too because they think well the artist is incentivized to go blow this thing up Right. Whereas if it stays static the whole time, what happens? I can tell you all kinds of artists that I will not name who've had lots of big hit songs that didn't do their record deals like that. And they are still paying these outrageous percentages Mm -hmm. back to the record labels. And it's it's almost indentured servitude at that point. Mm -hmm. They are locked into something. They can't get out of it. So remember this. Your attorney does not care what happens to you the second after you sign that piece of paper he's going to get his fee and that's when he's out the door and that's it it doesn't matter past that and the record label wants to get as much of your ass as they can as they should it's business you are the one that has to care about what's going to happen to you you are the one that has to tell this big powerful attorney hey i heard john Riss talk about sliding scales in a contract that if the better i do the less they get yeah, that exists. Well, why didn't you tell me about that, Mr. Attorney? Well, I don't know. Is that what you want to do? That's what they'll say. Well, hell yeah, that's what I want to do. You have to take control of your own career. It's called the music business. Yeah. Got to learn the business side of it. And if and you whatever don't know, you do, if, don't sign something that's giving away your publishing to somebody Yeah, else. and they're going so to try to take everything for nothing. Yeah. yeah, they'll try to take everything for nothing. And, and here's the thing. No is a complete sentence. Yeah. Let's go, right. no, I don't want to do that. And if the label really, really wants you, They'll, they'll meet you in the middle. You'll yeah. come out with a better deal. Right. And there's a lot of different ways to say no, too. You know, there's counter deals. You can say, okay, okay, if I do that, then it needs to be, it needs to be like if this. If I give and this come up, up, you're giving that, that yeah. up. It's got to be a give, it's got to be a win-win on both sides. I like working for futures, man. I yeah. think if, if you think you're going to go out and really knock, knock a home run, then build your deal as if you're going to yeah. knock a home run. Right. You know? I think that the people will respect you, the, the people that you're dealing with will respect you more if you sort of know. Absolutely. You know, MC Hammer, when he first started out, he was such a good businessman. Uh, he was selling cassette tapes out of the trunk of his car, doing dance things and stuff like right. that. Well, when it came time to do his record deal, they said, uh, well, here's the deal. And then, of course, MC Hammer was like, why would I sign that? That didn't make any sense. <laughs> and so he was able to, right off the bat, Got get a really sense. killer deal, Yeah. you know, 
and and insane. But here's the mistake he made, what you mentioned earlier, is he thought that that was going to be like the same always. He thought it was always going to, the money was always going to be there. Right. The wealth was always going to be there. And then it's one yeah. day it wasn't. It tails off. Yeah. It tails off for almost everybody yeah. at some point or another. So take advantage of it while you got it. Yeah, exactly. Sock it away. Right. Yeah. So um, so what's going on with uh, Big and Rich? I noticed you got a big summer calendar uh, coming up. Yeah, we're doing shows. We're doing, um, you know, going out and playing and hitting these shows. Cowboy Troy is still coming out with us. And it's pretty cool because, you know, the music that we've made, it's it's now it's kind of like Lone Star where you've got, you've got multiple generations of people. We still have people discovering our music. Wow. So like some, you know, a bunch of college chicks at a bachelorette party somebody will blast save a horse ride a cowboy and it's the first time they've heard it and then they'll come to our show and go oh my god we heard your song at a bachelorette party and sorry you're coming through town and we're all here and i'm like that's so cool yeah and then you got people that go hey i met my wife in a bar uh save a horse ride a cowboy you know back in 2004 five six somewhere like that it's uh it's a good show we do a big thing for the vets every single show over a thousand shows in a row without missing one before we sing the 8th of November, which is a song about a Vietnam vet, we bring veterans in active duty on stage and stop the show, read their name, their rank, where they served, when they served, and we hand them the microphone and let them say whatever they want to really? about their service and about the country. And then we sit them down and we sing the 8th of November. It's a huge moment in wow. the show every night. Patriotism is alive and well out there across this country. I know you see it all the time. Mm-hmm. Regardless of what you see in the news and what you see plastered on the billboards, when you go out there into America and you take the stage and you say, let's all sing God Bless America together, they sing that louder than any other song you're going to play all night long, including Save a Horse, Ride a Cowboy. True, yeah. They love their country. They want to see their country do well, and they love those vets so much. It's a powerful moment every night. Yeah, that is very true. Um, what was I going to ask you um, about... Um, the, the you had just done recently um you collaborated with a, a rap artist tom mcdonald and, yeah tom mcdonald yeah and it went number one or something like that it did it? Yeah. yeah number one downloaded wow. song in the and i saw the video you showed me um yeah if you guys want to see it go just go to youtube and look up john rich tom mcdonald and you'll find it end uh, of the world right end of the world end yeah the world. he's uh he's a rapper lives out in california he is one of the most vicious lyricists i have ever heard wow and he doesn't cuss so there's no profanity in his rap yeah and it will cut you up like a razor i wow. mean just it's like eminem level rap but coming at you about current events so he's yeah. rapping about what's going on right now so he'll touch every single subject that people won't touch yeah he'll come at him and lay and lay it out and so i became a fan of his during COVID. i'm sitting around bored pecking around seeing who's doing what and i run across tom mcdonald and i went god check this guy out white guy with face tattoos dreadlocks yeah crazy looking guy but man, he's he's, he's so so intelligent yeah, in the way right. he brings his lyric. I hit him up on Twitter. I followed him on Twitter. He followed back. I sent him a DM. I said, "Hey, man, I'm a big fan." He goes, "Well, me too." I said, "Well, let's get on the phone." So we got on the phone, had a chat uh, back during COVID, and he said, "Hey, man, would you ever want to do a song with me?" I go, "Yeah, if it's the right song." You know, it was about a year and a half later. He goes, "I think I've got the right song," and he sends me "End of the World." Would you want to sing the chorus? I said, "Absolutely, man. What a song." So I sang it, and uh, we put it out, and the sucker was the number one most downloaded song of all genres for uh, for a solid week on Billboard. So it did did really well. Yeah, I think when I was talking to you last, uh, uh, that was just going down. That had just gone down. Yeah. 
that went number one. Yeah, it was one. exciting, man. And I think people were shocked to see two guys that are so opposite right. come together and do something like yeah, that. But they but saw again, you on there, and it was well, like, that's, that's what a excites me, face. though. I, yeah. Listen, I believe that all kinds of people out there, totally different from me, even disagree with me vehemently about all kinds of things, but we still have a lot of commonality. If you can tap into that, that's what America is supposed to be about, that we yeah. can all disagree and still have each other's back at the end of the day. So I look for people that that uh, don't look like me, don't think like me, talk like me, got different opinions than me, find commonality with them and try to create something that matters. Yeah, that's true. Well, man, I, I think it's so cool that you've diversified like that, your, your diversity in music and your just open-mindedness about everything, about your, your you know, the whole big and rich thing and how mm-hmm. it's like, like you kind of freak parade thing and you're just, you're so accepting of all these different things and all that. And you kind of, in a way, remind me a little bit of Jerry, um, Jerry Reed, you know, Jerry Reed. I think I told you that earlier. That's a great compliment. That, I mean, because I wish you I know, could play guitar like Jerry Reed. He was a guitar player. He was an actor. He was a singer. He was a songwriter. He was just nothing. He is a producer too, wasn't he? Didn't he yeah, produce yeah. too? Yeah. yeah. I mean, just a sharp, sharp guy. And you remind me of him because you've got that going on. So I had this idea, a new Smokey and the Bandit <laughs> and you you would be the Jerry Reed oh, character. Oh, I would love you would that. Be Snowman I've never aspired or whatever his name to was. act. I've been asked to act in several things. And I never did it because acting is a real skill. That's like you need to go learn how to really do that correctly. And I never have. But if it was a funny movie like Smoking the Bandit, I could probably slip into that character. Yeah. Well, yeah. I saw the what was the commercial you did or something with the. Uh, I mean, it was the very introduction to you guys, and it was a big. I want to say Chevy commercial or something like that. Oh, yeah. was it? it was where a you Chevy turn commercial. the car backwards and yep. ride it up that ramp. Was that a video or was it a commercial? Well, it was a big commercial. Big commercial. For, uh, and you did Chevy. some acting in that. You showed a little bit of a little acting. bit. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I could probably do it. It's just never been an aspiration of mine. But uh, if you put me in a western and I got to be a bad guy, let Clint Eastwood shoot me off a horse, I'd be I'd be for that. It'd be honored. It'd be... Or, or if it was uh, <laughs> uh, you know smoking the bandit rides again or something. Yeah. I would, I would, would, I, I would do that. I would, I would totally tag you as, you know, you would be so believable as... Uh, well, if there's any directors out there listening, uh, hit me up with that idea. That's a good one. That's right. John Rich is the new Jerry Reed. <laughs> I'll take it, man. He was a vicious talent. Uh, any pickers that are listening right now, I, I think Jerry Reed invented chicken picking. Yeah. So the buka 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 down that yeah. sound right there. I don't know that anybody played a guitar the like that. The real staccato. Prior to him. St- yeah. Like I think country he, kind of. I think he was kind of the yeah. innovator of that. He he really was a, an innovator, like you're I saying. I mean, you know, he could take an electric guitar with no pedal or, you know, distortion or anything and just make it. Play it just, like a steel guitar. Yeah, man, just make it. Just yeah. Make sound. Absolutely incredible talent. Uh, Chet Atkins, th- go look up what Chet Atkins had to say about Jerry Reed. I mean, yeah. Jerry Reed could play things that Chet couldn't play, wow. which was impossible. And, but it uh, was true. He was he was Chet's protege. I mean, from what yeah. I understand, Jerry Reed learned how to play from yes. Chet, and then just took off and then took like, it off, took, took it to another place. It, yeah, right. Yeah, wow. Yeah, he was. I a wonder great who's, guy. who's Jerry Reed's protege. It's a good question. Somebody out there, somebody out there is. I mean, you know, I've gotten to meet most of my heroes that I ever wanted to meet. Uh, never got to meet Jerry Reed, and I never got to meet Roger Miller. That's the other one. I wish I could. The two right, guys, yeah. Roger and Jerry. Wow. I would have fit right in with those guys. Yeah, you would have. Yeah, definitely. Well, John, I'm, I know I'm taking up a lot of your time here, and uh, I'm going to I'm gonna let you go. And uh, it was, man, it was just awesome sitting here talking to you. Appreciate it's it, It's been Keith. a long time. And I'm getting ready to have a coffin fit, so it's a good time to end. <laughs> God bless you, man. Thank you. Okay, man. See you all.